I want you to return with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to look again at verses 20 through 24. And I'm going to make this promise based on the veracity of the truth and the living nature of the Word of God and based upon the fact that the Scripture reveals that what I'm going to promise you is something that God wants you to know and perform in your life. And so it goes something like this, and please know this is not based upon my understanding of anything, my ability to do nothing. But if you are struggling with any measure of assurance of your salvation, if you will even now silently in your own heart pray and ask the Lord to take these verses, open them to your understanding, that the Spirit of God would come and teach them to you, you will leave here with great assurance. You will leave here with the greatest of assurance that has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what Christ has done for you. So we looked at these verses last week, in part at least, focusing more on verses 20 and 21. But I want to go back and see them in their larger whole and really understand this putting off the old man and putting on the new man. By the time we reach verse 25, we are launched into the section of Ephesians where we are given commands very rapidly. Do not lie. Do this. Do that. Husbands, love your wives, and so forth. We've, we've looked at some of those, and we'll look at those in great detail as we move forward. What we have in verses 20 through 24 is the foundation upon which those commands rest. Why is it that Paul, inspired apostle as he was, inspired of the Spirit as he was, why was it that he could write these things to Christians and expect them to be obedient and able to be obedient to these things? The answer to that is only because of the truth that is contained in verse 20 through 24. This is the foundation for all of Christian ethics. The reason that we are expected to be moral at all is given in these verses. And I, I hope and pray and trust the Lord will teach us the truth of all of this. So let's read them again, reminding you that verse 20, Paul is addressing converted Gentiles. He is addressing those who are professing Christians, those that he has already called back in the first chapter in first and second verse, those who are saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. He's contrasting them with those who are still in their sins. He gave detail of those who are still in their sins in verses 17 through 19. And then when we get to verse 20, he says, but you, and that's emphatic. Paul is making a sharp contrast between those who are outside of Christ and those who are in Christ and perhaps this is a good point to interject there are only those two groups of people humanity is not divided over moral and immoral as important as that is 
Humanity is divided over those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. Great hope is held forth for those who are in Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And were we to be living at Christ's return, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But the opposite of that is so very bleak. To die outside of Christ, the Scripture says, is to die in your sins. And then to reap the full wrath of God against you for your sin. And so we see the difference in the verses 17 through 19, speaking of the unconverted, verses 20 through 24, speaking of those that have come to Christ. Paul says, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. The context here, Paul is contrasting in the most dramatic fashion the spiritual condition of unconverted Gentiles and the now newly converted Gentile Christians. If you'd go back and and look at verse 17, just so we see the contrast. He says, those who are not in Christ, which he calls here the rest of the Gentiles, of which these newly converted Gentiles are no longer to live like them. He says they have futility in their minds, darkened understandings, alienated from God. They are filled with ignorance because they have a blindness of heart and they have become calloused or past feeling to the things of God. And the result of this is that they have given themselves over to lewdness, unmitigated lust is what lewdness means. And then obviously, having given themselves over to this unmitigated lust, they are working all uncleanness with greediness. And so that is the backdrop for verse 20. This is how Christians are called to be different because of what Christ has done. And notice, Paul describes this in three ways. He says that, Christians have learned Christ, they have heard Christ, and they have been taught by or in Christ. So this is why Charles Hodge and others call this the greatest school, the school of Christ, to learn here and to be taught by him. So let's look at these three things a little bit closer before we move forward. What does it mean to learn Christ? This is the first and primary thing that Paul brings to the table when he says that newly converted Gentile Christians are to no longer live or walk like the rest of the Gentiles. The first thing that he brings out is that they have learned Christ. Notice he doesn't say you've learned some things about him, but you've learned his person. And I'm going to quote Charles Hodge here when he says, to learn Christ does not merely mean to learn his doctrines, It means to attain the knowledge of Christ as the Son of God, as God in our nature, 
the Holy One of God, the Savior from sin, whom to know is holiness and life. It's not just to learn things about him, it is to learn who he is, to learn he himself. In essence, Paul is saying, now that you have come to, to know God through Christ, this is how you ought to live. We could probably say that even better by saying, now that you have come to be known by God through Christ, this is what is expected of you. You've learned him. Reason number one, you're not to walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. You've learned Christ. But this extends. And I think Paul here is answering the question that we may pose. What does it really mean to learn Christ? Well, he then says, you have heard him. If indeed... And there again, as we said last week, I don't suppose Paul is interjecting doubt. We could read it this way. If, as I take for granted, some translations even use the word since instead of if, since indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him. So to hear Christ is to hear the effectual call of the Spirit given through the preaching of Christ's gospel. To hear that is to hear Christ. None have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. None have learned Christ who have not heard the effectual call of Christ administered by His Spirit as the truth of the gospel has been put in your ear. This is reason number two, that we are not to live like the rest of those who are still in sin because we've learned Christ, we've heard Christ. And then thirdly, Paul says, you have been taught by Christ, or the New American Standard renders it, you have been taught in Christ. If I could greatly summarize this and condense it, Paul is saying you know better. You know better. Christ has taught you of himself. You have been instructed, and notice how he puts this, as the truth is in Jesus. As the truth is in Jesus, which now the newly converted Gentiles have been taught, see it as being the very opposite of the futility of mind. That is the first description of those who are outside of Christ, those who are living only for here and now. So we could take these three things, the learning Christ, the hearing Christ, the being taught by Christ, and in and summarize that by saying, Paul is saying to us to be Christian is to have been enrolled in the school of Christ by Christ himself, to have had him as your teacher in the very, very environment of that instruction. And then to graduate from this school of Christ, you and I don't receive a diploma of sorts. To graduate from this school, we receive new life in him. That's why we're exhorted in the following verses to put on this new man or this new life. So let's look at verse 22. This is the, the first of the results of having been taught by Christ, the putting off concerning your former conduct. I think it was Charles Stott that said every Christian's biography 
is written in two volumes. The first volume comprises, to some degree, your life in sin. The second volume is altogether different. It's altogether new, and it is comprised of your new life in Christ. The first volume is the old man. The second volume is the new man. They're distinct, different. It brings to mind what Paul would write to the Corinthians when he says to them, he gives this long list of sins, and he says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But then some of you remember how he follows that up. He follows it up with the introduction to your second volume of your biography. When he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. What Paul is teaching us in verses 22 through 24, in essence, is what has closed the book on the first volume of your biography, so to speak. These are things that we must embrace by faith and understand. And that leads me to a most important question. I want to pause here, and if I've lost your attention already, please... Let me regain it in some way. Because the question that I'm going to ask and then the way that it's answered is going to be vital if this sermon is to make any sense at all. The question is this. In verses 22 through 24, is Paul giving commands to be obeyed or is he giving truths to be believed? Is he giving us something that we must in our own strength do? Or is he giving us something that with the help of the Spirit we must understand things that are indicative of who we are in Christ? To ask the question in another way, are these things in verses 22 through 24 imperatives or are they indicatives? Imperatives being authoritative commands and indicatives being instructional truth, which is what we've dealt with mainly to this point through the first three, four and a half chapters. Paul has been teaching us who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us to reconcile us to God. I may surprise some of you by saying these are not commands to obey. I know it reads that way. It says put off, and it seems like the responsibility is, is placed solely on us. So let me deal honestly with this. In some places, these very words are used as imperative commands. Case in point, Romans 13, verse 14, when we, are, when we read there, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That is very clearly in its context. Romans 13, an imperative command to obey. 
But when we look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, which we should know by now Colossians is basically Ephesians condensed. You can almost outline it the same way. The only difference is on certain points, Paul goes into much greater detail. Well, when you get to the 8th verse of chapter 3, which is the parallel for Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 20, notice what he says in verse 8, Colossians 3. But now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. There it's a little different. Paul is speaking of this in Colossians 3 as something that has already been done. Something that has already happened. Something that has happened for them. If I've not convinced you so far, let me go to verse 25 and perhaps this will help. In verse 25, we have an explicit imperative command. There is no way to get around that this is what we're dealing with in verse 25. Paul introduces it with the word therefore and he says, putting away lying. So we look at that first word of verse 25 and we hit rewind and we go back up into verses 24, 23, 22. And we have to remind ourselves of one of the principles of biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, the the study of the, the science of interpreting the scriptures is that imperative exhortations must be built upon facts, not other exhortations. Does that make sense? It would be like me telling one of my children, take out the trash, therefore clean your room. Does that make any sense? A command on top of a command, a command as the basis for the command, therefore take, take out the trash, therefore clean your room. Doesn't fit, right? But, when we see the therefore as resting upon indicative truth, then it makes perfect sense. And if we were to read it in this way, and by the way, there are, there are a great number of trusted biblical interpreters who would be in agreement with this. Not that that matters to me so much, but it may matter a great deal to some of you. To see these things as indicative truths not something that we have to, in our own strength, to do. To do. We've already been taught in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, what Christ has done for us, what God in rich mercy and great love has done with the old man. We were given great description of the old man in verses 1 through 3 of the second chapter of being dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in disobedience and so on. That is a description of life as the old man. And let me ask you a question. Did you do anything to put that old man off? I would say no because the next two words of verse 4 says, but God. God did something for you to this old man. And then he also did something for you in regards to the new man. 
the old man was put off for us by the rich mercy and the great love of God, and the new man was given to us when we were made alive together with Christ. So what we have in verses 22 through 24, this whole putting off and putting on, are things that concern what Christ has done for us in our initial conversion, those filthy rags that Isaiah speaks of. God in rich love and mercy has come, and in our spiritual self, in our deadness of sin, He has taken all of those filthiness of rags and He has discarded them from His sight, and therefore He has discarded them from us. Some of you quite simply need to close the book on the first part of your biography and move on. Paul says, forgetting those things which are past and striving towards those things that are future, this new man that we have been given and has been put on for us has come to us by the mercy of God. When we understand it in this way, and when we read it in this way, and some of the translations bring it out in this way, I'm reading to you from the New King James. What we see is that these are things that have been done as we peel the layers back on our salvation. The truth is in Christ that we have put off concerning our former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. This is part of what it means to be converted. Part of what it means to be regenerate. The old man and his conduct has been dealt with. Yes, it was growing corrupt and had grown corrupt because of deceitful lusts, but the word put off here means to discard and throw away, just like you would a filthy garment. Occasionally, the kids will play in the yard, play in the mud, and I'll find you know, a sock or I'll find something that's just been thrashed. And I have to make the decision, is it worth it? Is it really worth it to throw this thing in the laundry? Or should I just toss it in the trash? A lot of times I just toss it in the trash. It's a filthy garment that just needs to be done away with. That's the old man. You couldn't put him off if you wanted to. In the sense that Paul is speaking of here. This old man must be dealt with by Christ. It must be dealt with by rich love and mercy of a great and merciful God. Nor could you anymore put on this new man in the sense that Paul is speaking of here. This new man's clothes has to be brought to you, applied to you. We have a word for that in Christian doctrine, and it is imputation. The very righteousness of Christ, the clothing of this new man, must come to you in the love and the mercy of God and be applied to your account. These are clothes that you cannot put on. But these, this is clothing that your heavenly Father in heaven is pleased to place on you, to give you. Notice right in the middle of this putting off and putting on, and I think by, the, by understanding verse 22 in this way, just like it reads in the parallel Colossians 3.8, since you have put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt, 
according to deceitful lusts. And since you have put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, standing in the middle of these two great gospel concepts, we read and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. How many know that in the middle of having your first part of your life story written and dealt with in the beginning of the second part of your life in Christ, there is something that God has done for you in the realm of your thinking. Go back with me to verse 17. No longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Verses that we know so well out of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, speak about the renewal of the mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Again, I think we could read it this way in faithfulness having been renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on this new man created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Interestingly, when you get over to chapter 5 and verse 8, if you would just turn there, I think Paul is giving even more commentary on these verses when he says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. So when Paul tells us here we have been created newly in Christ, true righteousness and holiness to walk in light, there is great parallel with God's original creation. Go back to Genesis. In his new creation, God spoke and what happened? God said, let there be light and there was light. In this new creation, this new man, there's no wonder why one of Paul's first commands after giving all of this great indicative truth is that you walk as children of light. Because God has done away with the darkness in you. This in no way does away with the doctrine of remaining sin. There is still that struggle that Paul writes about in Galatians chapter 5, the spirit and the flesh, the flesh and the spirit. But what it does do is it tells us and it shows us and reiterates to us that God in and through Christ has already won these battles in our hearts and in our minds so far as we understand what has taken place in salvation. There, are, there is great place for imperative commands, the do's and the do nots in Scripture, and we are getting to those, getting there next week, Lord willing, with verse 25. 
But verses 22 through 24 are the grounds, the reasoning, the facts, the truths upon which all of these exhortations are built. Now, let me ask a question. Why is it helpful to understand these verses in this way as being truths to believe and not commands to obey? It has to, to do and bear in the realm of sanctification, which was our subject in our first hour this morning. How many of you would say in your experience as a Christian that you are completely satisfied with how your sanctification, your growth in holiness and righteousness has gone as a whole? Are you, really, are you where you want to be truly and really? Can you sustain it in your own strength? I think when we are all in a sober moment and thinking rightly, we would say that we have a long way to go in this realm of being made more and more like Christ. I made you a sort of not a sort of promise, I made you a promise at the beginning that if we could understand and be taught of the Spirit, these truths, that it would go a long way to help us in this realm of assurance. Let me see if I can bring that to pass here. Very often we measure our assurance on our ability to put off the old man and our ability to put on the new man. And I'm not saying for a moment that good works has no bearing on assurance because it surely does. A tree is known by its fruit. The 10th verse of the second chapter has told us that we were, that these good works were prepared beforehand by God himself in that we should walk in them. You will never see enough good works in your life to completely satisfy your conscience. That's why these verses are so important. You can't produce enough good work to completely assure your conscience. But what you can do, I'm not saying you have to, to fall into despair. What you can do and what you should do with the help of the Spirit is believe that you have been created anew, that you have, you have been clothed in this righteousness of Christ, the new man that you now are, the new woman that you now are, has been created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, you believe this by faith, that these are, are truths describing who you are in Christ. You are a new creature. The old is gone. It's past. All things have become new. And the old man, which had grown corrupt according to deceitful lusts, has once and for all been dealt with for you by a rich, merciful, and loving God, he has put him to death. That's why Paul would say in Romans 6, you have died with Christ. 
The old man has been buried. Isn't that what we celebrate in baptism? Baptism is the the premier picture that we have been given, an ordinance that Christ has given His church that pictures these very truths. The old man has been buried with Christ in baptism, in death. The first volume of your biography is closed. It is sealed there. And when you are raised to walk in newness of life, then this new man has been symbolically has, has burst forth from the grave. No longer is he growing corrupt in deceitful lusts, but he has been created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. The point here is that we don't always feel these things. And that's where we sound the warning. Feelings are always dangerous to operate by and to live by. Sometimes, most of the time, we need foundational, indicative truth that teaches us that these things have been done in our lives. The old man has been put off. The new man has been put on. Therefore, stop lying to one another. Doesn't that make more sense than building commands upon commands? Put off the old man, put on the new man, therefore, no, I think it's the other way around. When you understand the new man has been dealt with and cast aside, you understand that the the new man has been brought to life and created, then the therefore is in the right place. These things having been done for you by Christ, created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, therefore begin to live life. This is where the discipline and responsibility of Christian sanctification and life comes in. Do you have great responsibility in your sanctification before God? Yes, you do. But are you in it alone? No, you are not. If we were in it alone, the first volume would not have an ending. We'd just keep writing it. But thanks be to God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. What does that mean? The new man has been created. We have been clothed in Christ. The old man is gone. If you have truly entrusted yourself to Christ by faith, you are a new creation. You are a light. You are light now, so walk as children of light. How does this come to bear on the whole realm of assurance? Believe that these things, Paul writes in 22 through 24, have been done for you. And you are no longer, as the prophet speaks, wallowing in your own blood on the road. But you've been raised up to newness of life. You know, this corresponds also to the book of Romans. Romans is comprised of 16 chapters. And it's not until the 11th verse of chapter 6 
where we read the first indic- or excuse me, imperative command. It's not until the 11th verse of chapter 6 where Paul tells the Romans to whom he is writing to actually do something. The first six and a half chapters are full of indicative truths, teaching them and informing their minds who they are in Christ, what Christ has done for them. Do you know what that 11th verse says? Romans chapter 6, verse 11 He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word reckon there means to consider. It's an accounting word that means to count. Basically, if I could summarize it, Paul is saying, think of yourselves the way God in Christ thinks of you now. Reckon yourselves indeed to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is where the bearing of this comes to play in this whole issue of assurance of salvation. Do you struggle with sin? Of course you do. That is not new to you. You are not in it alone. Do you grieve over your sin like you should? Probably not. Again, that's not new to you, and you're not in it alone. That's a reality in your life. That that is why the prospect of heaven is held out before us in such a glorious way. The very presence of sin will be gone. It will not be something that we have to deal with any longer. We'll know nothing of this Romans 7 struggle that Paul writes about. I know what to do. I want to do what I know what to do. But I don't very often do it. That's my life. So how, do you, how does this come to bear on this realm or issue of assurance again? I think it goes right back down into this 11th verse of Romans 6. Likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The presence of sin and the struggle of sin in your life does not mean necessarily that you are not a Christian. Very likely it means the direct opposite. Those that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, those that are having futility of mind, darkened understandings, alienated from the life of God, ignorance in them, blindness of heart, past feeling, past feeling, past feeling, are not struggling with sin to the degree that a Christian struggles with sin. Their conscience, according to Paul, past feeling, has been seared, has been seared as with a hot iron, he would write in another place, and they have ultimately and finally given themselves over, given themselves over to unmitigated lust. For a person to get in this condition first, he must be, in my estimation, Romans chapter 1, given over by God giving them up to a debased mind. That's why the emphatic nature of verse 20 should come home with such force. But you, professing Christian, are altogether different. The old man has been put off of you. It has been wiped away. The slate has been made clean. You are a new creation in God, a new creature. And you have been created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Another reason why I think this is something to believe and not to obey. How are you going to clothe yourselves in true righteousness and holiness? This is something God has to do for you. And he delights in the performance of it. So now I think we can proceed in coming weeks, Lord willing, with the foundation set. Now this is what is expected of you. Live as light. Why? Because you are light. Notice chapter 8, verse 5. Paul does not say, go out and make yourselves light. And then live as light. No, he says, live as light because you are light. You have been made light. The rest of this epistle, at least down to the middle of chapter 6, we could probably lump this all together, rests upon this foundation and the right understanding of it. As a believer in Christ, what is my relationship to sin? The penalty of sin has been broken. The power of sin has been broken. The old man has been put off. The new man has been put on. And we're yearning for the day when the very presence of sin will be taken away from us. Verses 25 and following is Paul basically saying, go out and live what you really are. Don't try to make yourself into these things. Christ has accomplished everything for you. Go out and live in light of these facts. And in so doing, you are bringing the utmost glory to God. I wonder if there may be someone whom the Lord is convicting. I remember so much what it's like to live that life. To week after week feel the conviction of God. Let me tell you, if that's you, you're in a place of mercy. The Lord is extending mercy to you again and again and again. But don't presume upon it. Don't think that he will keep extending it to you forever. Your life is a vapor. Even if you live to be the oldest amongst us, your life is a vapor. And by the way, you're not guaranteed that you will even get home today. Don't presume upon the Lord. If there is conviction of sin in your heart and in your mind, the proper way to deal with that is to run to Christ. Cast your all upon Him. Trust in what He has done to make payment for your sin. And the old man will have then been put off. And the new man will have then been put on. And that new man has been created in true righteousness and holiness. So my appeal to you, come to Christ. I can't make you come. Your parents can't make you come. Only the Spirit of God can draw you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me.
you'll have your sins dealt with, then you'll have them dealt with in Christ and He alone. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these words, the truths of these verses, Lord, that you in mercy and love have dealt with the deadness of our sin and trespasses, that you have raised us to walk in newness of life. Lord, help us to truly sink the roots of faith down into these truths. And upon that foundation, may we live out the therefores of the rest of the book of Ephesians, that we truly are new creatures. We thank you for your abundant mercy. You are full of mercy and truth. You are love itself. But we also know that the scriptures teach us that you're just. You're holy. So Father, I pray that you would do that work in mercy and in great love in the life of anyone who is yet outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Draw them with cords of love. Make them willing in this the day of your power. Overcome any obstacle in their heart, in their mind. Whatever it is, if it's fear, Lord, help them to see the truth that perfect love has cast out fear. In his place has come sound reasoning of mind. Lord, if it's a lack of understanding, would you even now flood minds with truth by your Spirit? Help us to understand things that we have not yet understood. Show us the beauty of Jesus Christ, both in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Father, help us to see all of these things. Help us to learn Christ. Cause us to learn Christ. Cause us to hear Him, to be taught by Him, as the truth is only found in Jesus Christ. Father, do this work. We appeal to Your kindness, Your mercy, Your goodness. We, we ask, Lord, that You would do it unto Your own praise and honor. And we ask it only in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.